After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me... Oh, guys, I have an awesome guest. I have been really excited to get him on the show when he was first pitched as a guest because we've already talked about one of his movies, The Other Half, which from uh, all of my listener profiles, I can tell you guys we're really into. So I have the writer, director, Joey Klein with me today. Hey, Joey, how you doing? I am I'm excellent. Right. I'm, I'm pulled up. There is a small child here today. So if anyone hears happy noises in the background, he's playing a new board game. So that's what that is. <laughs> he's supposed to be here. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's all going on here. How are you holding up, Joey? Oh, I'm just fine. Thank you. I, I am totally not somebody anyone should even think about, let alone worry about. Uh, this, you know, this very complicated time is... I'm one of the privileged people. My lifestyle, my what my work is, is not nearly... Well, you have the privilege of being both a writer and director. So while you're prepping something possibly in the writing phase, you then can bring it out as soon as we are allowed to be within a pole's distance of each other on some sort of set. Yeah, that's definitely the way I've... I think we're all looking at it in like, you know, the camp of people I work with. I think who knows how slow down the process of going to camera will be. The joys of development and of research and uh, I'm, I'm working on four different things around right now. So time is a bit difficult to like track them all in your brains, but um, there's just all, all kinds of, you know, work to be done. And then I think, as you said, I think realistically, um, the, the more, well, clearly the more intimate and the smaller a project, the, the simpler it'll be to start working. But um, I think that that would be the rub for what I would be looking to do next is, um, you know, something a little bit more intimate in the system, uh, as opposed to some other projects I have with, uh, now, you discussed uh, how a lot of your projects are more intimate and uh, you like to have a research and development process behind them. And that is incredibly clear in your new film, Castle in the Ground. It's going to be hitting VOD and streaming on the 15th. So that's two days from now if you're listening to this episode when it drops. It'll be available if you're listening to this in the future so you can go check it out. This cast is insane. You've got Alex Wolf, you've got Imogene Poots, Nev Campbell, Tom Cullen is back in this one again. Let's talk a little bit about this one. So where are people going to be able to find it what streaming services uh, i mean other than itunes I don't really know. <laughs> it's gonna be there i should be i should be i should, yeah it'll definitely be here. i mean we just had a talk with our um one of our distributors yesterday and it sounds like all kinds of different platforms but all of which i do not know for sure itunes for sure you could rent it on amazon prime i guess they first have what's called like the tvod which is um you know like to order it like to rent it and then it gets into the next phase uh, i don't know exactly when where it would like have a home perhaps on a prime or a netflix who knows but um for now i'd personally be going like i'm going to watch never rarely sometimes always soon and i believe you rent that we didn't on get it on netflix yet i'm waiting patiently yeah yeah exactly but i, I know for sure we could rent castle on itunes and also it'll be on prime 
Um, there's more platforms in the States than here. That's why I'm as befuddled as I am. But I would well, let's I talk a little bit about there. what that film is about. So it follows in the grand tradition of you enjoying incredibly difficult and challenging topics to discuss, but handling them with great aplomb. So what's this one about? Uh, the film is about a, a teenager who is the primary caretaker for his critically ill mother. She, uh, that's uh, Nev, Car- Nev Campbell's character. Um, she's been diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Not that we say that in the film, but that's the backstory. And... Um, as he's taking care of her, um, you kind of get an understanding that she's more than just his mother. She's, you know, his whole world and really his whole identity is wrapped up in his, in his taking care of her. And um, something happens, unfortunately, and his world is just turned completely upside down. Uh, after his mother's gone, uh, there's a leftover stash of Oxycontin 80s and fentanyl patches per the prescribed drug she would have had. Uh, for pain relief as a cancer patient at her stage. Um, and so he has a choice to make about um, how to deal with his grief and, and how to move on after this loss. And uh, per this kind of unlikely but new codependent friendship he forms with this woman across the hall who's trying to kick her own habit, they both fall into this kind of codependent friendship that's based on commiseration but also uh, drug use. And uh, it all happens in 2012 in Sudbury, actually, when the company that made OxyContin, Purdue Pharma, took OxyContin off the market, um, not for magnanimous reasons, for patent reasons, um, people like the Hells Angels and a lot of illicit drug dealers started flooding, especially small town streets, with what they call fake 80s, which are fake OxyContin 80s. And uh, at that time, people knew less about the fake pills, and they looked incredibly um, perfectly like the real ones. So the OD rate started spiking around that time of 2012, before we knew the word fentanyl, before that was something that we had a lot more intel on. Uh, So it was a watershed moment in the opiate epidemic where um, it kind of passed a, well, I don't know if this is fair to say, but it seems like it passed a point of no return, kind of has gotten us to this moment where, you know, a lot of people suffering from addiction are really exposed and vulnerable and sadly ever more right now. Uh, I gave you more. No, that was fabulous. Because again, like we said, you are a man who researches the heck out of his projects and what you're talking about. And so, I mean, the opioid crisis in terms of this, what the the drugs do to people, how that sort of addiction works. And in the other half, you also were dealing with serious mental uh, mental health issues, uh, rapid cycling, bipolar disorder. And uh, I mean, you don't approach these topics lightly. And I think there's some people that are making films who are just like, oh yeah, we're just going to talk about the the opioid epidemic and then uh, people will do drugs and maybe they'll shoot each other and that'll be the end. Whereas, I mean, these are very specific details of how these things happened and how these people get caught up in them. And that's what makes us interested and intrigued with the actual storytelling. It's what makes us care, right? Oh, thanks. I mean, I, I definitely attack storytelling, I guess, from a point of view of what would make me care. Like, I am much more interested in character development to a point than plot. I mean, uh, it also depends on the scope of your film. But with these kinds of stories, um, my the the in into the story was always for me about uh, character, and I come from being an actor, and I'm more trained as an actor than as a filmmaker. So there's you know just parts of my process and my you know tools I use when I work that that are very informed by being an actor, loving actors, loving what I know they bring to the table and how brave they are, and and just getting in the story from that point of view. So I think it's probably natural that I that I gravitate towards you know more character driven work. Um, and then it's just, you know, um, 
a mix of things. I, I think the main thing to me is that if you're going to tell a story about people suffering from grief or mental uh, a mental illness of some kind or people suffering from addiction, um, it's just the most, the first thing I guess to me is that I can make sure as best as I can that, that I'm being respectful and loving because um, one has to make sure that this puts love out, that this doesn't in any way um, disrespect or um, devalue what real people are going through every day. And at best, hopefully, while this doesn't tell you what it's like to be in Emily's shoes or Nikki's shoes or any of the characters in Castle's shoes, hopefully it opens a little bit of a window. So with all the research and, and um, you know, uh, the privilege of working with people like Tom and Tad and Emmy and Alex and all of them, Nev, Kier, Tom and, and Castle, um, you, you have like this opportunity to go deep. For me, I have watched films to, sorry if this offends anyone, but like I really get upset with something like Silver Linings Playbook. If they, if they advertise it as a rom-com and said, this is just a light, fun film, that'd be great. But it was advertised as a drama about mental illness. And I just felt it really uh, was disrespectful to the true depths of what people go through. And, you know, there are other kind of certain kind of films dealing with addiction, you know, back in the day than Hollywood, where it was kind of cute. Was, and, you know, I understand that those are, you know, films trying to reach larger audiences, but that can't be at the expense of the real people going through. You know, we're not going to make a film about, uh, you know, larger stories of genocide, whether it be uh, what happened in Rwanda to the Tutsis or, or the Holocaust or, you know, if there are going to be films about this, you know, pandemics of any kind. Um, we don't see stories of just, you know, outright um, disrespect to the real people who suffer through it. So why should uh, we I agree with you wholeheartedly. Way? There's even uh, articles I've seen where the general North American populace doesn't have an understanding of what true poverty looks like because when they see it in film and television, these people still have like these giant apartments, you know, they're, they're still relatively <laughs> clean. Their water is still on, you know, like there's, there's no, uh, there really isn't any realism in that because you have to be properly lit in order to make a TV show. Um, so we don't, we're not able to kind of engage our empathy factors when we don't see what it really looks like in that that way. Um, but when I, was, when I saw a TIFF interview you did, because this film, of course, screened at TIFF, um, you talked about how you had started with a concept that was supernatural, and then you found that a little too mm -hmm. um, artificial, and then you moved forward. What about that wasn't ringing true for you as a filmmaker or as a writer? Well, I've read, uh, it, it was, you know, to put it crudely, it was a, it was a, it was a kind of creature feature that involved a vampiric type mm. lady. And Tatiana, uh, who who played Emily and in, in, in the other half? She was going to be uh, doing that movie before she she got this Broadway show. Uh, it was Network, and oh, she was so good in that. And the play was amazing. But uh, th so we were developing it like that. And obviously, Tat would be such an uh, she'd be incredible in whatever she does. So I was developing it literally for her. And as we were talking about it, and um, I was just getting deeper into the story, I just felt like I was pushing to make. Joey Klein's second film instead of um, making sure that I put love out as I, as I do when I go to work and and I just need to make sure one way or the other and love can be entertainment you know maybe in the in like the fourth film I make sure I'd be you know able to do that um, but at this stage with this storyline and there already being the the Henry uh, storyline with his mother and her you know uh, having stage three or stage four cancer and having opiates in the house for what should be prescribed. That was already that storyline there. And then everything I was exploring with this, you know, uh, this monster creature was ultimately about addiction and loneliness. You know, what was she addicted to? She was addicted to blood and, you know, 
everything that I was interested in with the vampiric um, tropes was about what was underneath it. And so it just started to feel disrespectful to the subject matter to heighten it in that way because it wasn't necessary. I think I've taken some of the things from that script and developed something else called Behemoth, which I'm really excited about. But that, in that case, that structure is helping tell the story. In this case, I feel like it was a burden and it was added. And I felt like I couldn't go as deep as once I just took away the, you know, that extra layer. Um, and I also thought about the Rendezvous with Madness, which I think is a really wonderful festival and a wonderful place. And, and the people at Workman Arts who run that place are phenomenal. And um, they're really, you know, putting a lot of good work out. And uh, their, their mandate is that they are the first and biggest festival um, surrounding uh, stories of mental health and awareness, addiction and recovery. And I just kind of thought about how meaningful it was to me to show the other half there and be involved in a community of people who, you know, sadly, in some ways I do know, know a little bit more about what it's like to walk in those shoes. Um, and uh, I just kind of thought about, you know, their mandate and, and what I was trying to develop. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm literally making a film about people suffering from addiction. So why hide from that? And that was kind of the, the, the last kind of mindset that helped me just kind of jump in. And it's an interesting thing about writing because as soon as I took that element out, it, it shaped, it just kind of like all fit together. Like, 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 I don't know what a good analogy would be, but just like some kind of machinery that all of a sudden every shape fits in it. It just goes like, and uh, it was undeniable at that point. Now, Free. obviously your films are intended to create conversation. There's an entertainment there as well, but like it's a date night for a certain type of person who like to go out and be like, let's have a think about it, um, which, which is wonderful. And so if people are, are seeing your films, do you feel a responsibility then, because you do the research, you do the backstory, do you then feel a responsibility in your interviews or anything like that, or when the, the uh, websites come out to point to resources that people can then access to be like, if you want to know more about this, this is what I did for my research or anything like that. Oh, I mean, I would love to be a part of an ongoing um, conversation. I have to admit, I don't live too much on the internet in any way. Um, I definitely use it to research and it, it's great that way. I use it to stream movies and I use it to find music, but uh, I'm not really like, I'm not really on, I have an Instagram account, I have a Facebook account. I don't really use them. I don't ever post anything ever about anything, like literally nothing. And it's just a choice for me. I just, I, I don't feel I feel sick getting involved in that world for myself. It just makes me uh, feel uh, kind of unwell. Whereas like, you know, living here on planet earth with people, seeing them, talking to them, that's kind of the way I choose to um, engage. So um, I, I just I just find that the internet can be a friendly place when, when you're specific about what you want to find. And uh, I didn't have any methodology. I just literally would do Google searches or YouTube searches and obviously choose, you know, the better publications. There's a phenomenal, uh, I guess, expose or breaking report in the New Yorker that, that introduced the larger world, Purdue Pharma R, and who the Sacros are. And for, for anyone who doesn't know, they were the main company to introduce oxycodone to the market. Their drug was OxyContin. And they willfully and willingly um, manufactured an, an epidemic. I mean, I, I have to say it's kind of a nice word to call it an epidemic when you look at what they did. It's really a genocide. And it was um, very, very clear to them what would happen if they marketed OxyContin as a, um, as, as pain relief for, for um, you know, anything more than the horribly acute and chronic. And um, it was a very strategic, uh, 
very orchestrated um, like uh, attack on the populace because they basically made $31 billion off OxyContin. And now if you're following in the news, they've settled, you know, for 12 for $15 billion. Um, but that's madness. So you tell people, I mean, once you have a certain amount of money, it makes no difference. And here we are, there's over half a million people who have died from, from their creation. Um, so I would definitely suggest reading the New Yorker article on the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, but you can follow down a pretty, um, uh, heavy rabbit hole with the research on it. Anybody who, who does uh, watch the film and, and want to explore more, um, I guess the main thing I would encourage is, um, of course, right now it's a very complicated moment and, um, I, I, I don't know what could be done right now, but, um, when we are on the other side of this moment in some meaningful way where we're all safer, um, people who are suffering from addiction, um, there's not going to be much change for them. And sadly, this time they were probably the most exposed compared to most of the people we know. Uh, and safety injection sites can really save lives. And even if you see a person suffering from addiction as a junkie or some really unfortunate word, uh, you're still going to save money on your taxes if you believe in safety injection sites. The toll that uh, the system takes when we don't get behind that kind of um, infrastructure um, on our healthcare system, on the penal system, will ultimately cost our country and America a lot more. Um, so there is real ways that people can actually band together and save lives and also treat people like people. Um, my, my LA producer said this lovely thing because we were talking with Nev about, you know, the, the, the publicity she's doing in the States and just things that we want to talk about. Because, of course, we want to make sure we're being very sensitive about the fact that when we were making this film, it was a different moment in time. And, you know, I had a moment where I thought, like, do you even release it right now? But I think we absolutely have to release it right now because people suffering from addiction are even more exposed. And what my LA producer was saying is that, you know, if there is a silver lining to this moment, in some ways, perhaps it has encouraged more ideas of community and, commis and commiseration and, and compassion that maybe we've lost a bit in terms of our culture of narcissism and our selfie taking. I'm not saying you take one picture of yourself, you're bad, but maybe there can be a balance. And I think that hopefully we can come out of this time and have a little bit more compassion also for our neighbors and our, and our, and our people that, that aren't literally our brothers or sisters but have um, you know, fallen prey to this moment that um, wasn't like uh, indulgence. It's not hedonism that leads to this. And I think that's a misconception. Uh, sorry for another really long answer. It's just really important to me that I get these things out because um, there has for so long been a stigma about the junkie. And that's a bad word, man. We're, we're getting really good on this planet about changing our mindsets and, 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 and certain language that we used to use as kids. We're like, that's not an acceptable word. Junkie's got to be in there. It's an unacceptable way to talk about somebody who's suffering from addiction. Um, so there's another long So listeners who have not yet seen a Joey Klein film, this is the kind of passion that you can find within his filmmaking. So if you're enjoying this, it's the same thing. Really just translated into cinema. So there you go. You're dope at taking my madness and then just like... <laughs> exactly. Well, it just makes so much that. sense, right? Like that's the thing. You want people to be able to be articulated about the the difficult 
real life topics they're dealing with. And then, I mean, some people can only translate it into screen, screen and then you see them talk about it in interviews and you're like, oh, oh, I see. That's why you made a movie. <laughs> but uh, the movie that you picked today actually is great because it articulates that as well. And it's articulating all of these ideas of like responsibility. When is, when is the right moment to release something? Are there some things we just shouldn't talk about or cover? Uh, what movie did you pick today, Joey? Uh, well, I gave you three options, and of my three, you picked my pick, which is Poly Technique, and I I do love that film, and of course, I do feel like, uh, you know, he's as good as everybody says he is, and, and that much more, and uh, I do feel like that was an instance in our country where, um, like, a, a brilliant, brilliant auteur uh, did put love out in terms of a subject that's really, really hard to talk about, look at, think about. Now, you've so seen this film you mentioned possibly four times. This is on my list of movies that I have seen once, and I'm good. <laughs> There's very, very right. few movies that are right. on that list. Usually I'll be like, hey, I'll watch it second, third. This one, Dancer in the Dark, like there's a few that I'm like, no, I've seen it once. I'm glad I watched it. I can't do it again. Um, but like you said, this is just such a, a masterful film. Uh, listeners will want to go back and listen to the Don Carmody episode I did last year. He was one of the producers of this film, and he chose this film as well to talk about on a more technical level. Um, so if you want behind-the-scenes stuff from that, the Don Carmody episode has a bunch about Polytechnique, which is just fascinating. So we can do that. But here we're going to get a little bit more into the the feeling of it, a little bit more into the editing, why we love it, why it's masterful. Joe, why do you love this movie? To me, the things I get the most excited about and turn me on the most in other people's work is when content is in form. And, you know, the mise-en-scene and the nuts and bolts of the filmmaking is telling the story as much as what the characters are saying, or hopefully much more. And I feel like in a really loving and respectful and masterful way, he very respectfully took on, um, you know, I'm from Montreal as well. I can remember hearing the news about polytechnique on the news when I was, you know, when I was like 12 or something with my mom in the car. And um, yeah, of course it's, you know, whether you're from Montreal or not, you, you, you just need to be a human being to hopefully always respect the fact that since that moment in time, unfortunately, these kinds of events have become far, 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 far more regular. And I feel like in the simple filmmaking, for example, editing wise, as you say, uh, there is an achronological or atemporal structure where um, we come back and forth within time. And so like, I, I sit there and I think like, why is he doing that? And I, I think that the way I, the way I attack, uh, the way I attack shot listing with my brilliant DP Bobby Shore is we talk about character state of being and, and what's the, the, the story moment and how do you uh, evoke that in, in, in the actual mise-en-scene and in the filmmaking. And I feel like he's just always a master of honoring what the film is about in form. So it just makes so much sense to me that that editing style would be elliptical because that's how, how do you feel when you live in a world where this happens or you are literally the victim of it? How, I mean, there's no way to put into words that kind of trauma. And I think that in a quiet way, just the fact that we're off balance when we're watching the film, we're like, oh, now we're here. Now we're here. It's just correct, and it's a loving way to edit a film. Uh, there's a very simple moment when when he goes into the when he goes into the um, the classroom, and he says that the women go to the left and the men go to the right. He just does the simplest thing, and he just he just crosses the axis. So all of a sudden, left is right, and right is left, and it's just the quietest, simplest kind of discombobulation. And it's just such a loving, sensitive way 
to deal with a moment. How do you how do you render that? How do you shoot that? Uh, there's no pyrotechnics. There's you know there's some things he does where the camera is all of a sudden on the side or the very last shot of the, of the film I forgot about where it's upside down along the the ceiling. Uh, you know so everything is literally turned upside down. Uh, I mean those are you know filmmaking flourishes and you can like them or not. I don't personally need them although I think he's such a genius that I'm like I'm not offended by that. But for the most part, the film is just so unadorned and quiet. And then you also have something in black and white. And like whenever anyone shoots in black and white, especially today, people are like, oh, why is it in black and white? And people love to tear it down. But again, it's like he just strips everything away. Like color is too much. It's just like the simplest bare bone elements of film. And just as, you know, black and white is as old as cinema is, violence against women and violence against each other is as old as time so it's just such a such a quiet poetic way to share this and say you know like i'm sure he felt like i hope i'm respecting it as an audience member i feel like you're beautiful. I'm you're totally there with you. And I love when you have a filmmaker like Denis Villeneuve, where you have a body of work that you can look at and see kind of points of growth and how he, how he moves and changes throughout. It's always such a treat for me to be like, okay, he learned how to do this here in this movie so that he was able to apply it to this moment later on because he understood what this was. And uh, I think that's fascinating to me. And this one is such a masterclass in editing because his film before this was Maelstrom. And uh, that one, if uh, our audience isn't familiar with it, is kind of a, a, a nightmarish drama rom-com that's narrated by a gasping fish that's dying. It's, it's very strange. And then to go from that where it's very heightened, the colors are very saturated, it's got that like 2000s greeny blue sort of filter all over it. And yeah, I know yeah, you want me to look back now and you're like, oh yeah, we used to do that. Good work, us. <laughs> we thought that was drama. Um, and then you go into this, which is just clean, 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 black and white, very stark. Um, I have an interesting little piece of trivia for you where I don't know if you would know this, but Don Carmody said the original cut of this film was three hours long. Apparently he brought it to the producers and the producers were like, we can't really release this. Like, it's just too long to sit in. Can you take it back and maybe cut a bit? And he came back and then it's the cut we have now, which is 70 minutes and they were like uh where's the movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, yeah it's 77 and, minutes and i and uh I and it's one of those things film. where it's I like i think that's the perfect understanding of how long you can actually sit in a difficult topic because like you said this film is relentless and it makes you feel and it hurts and it flips over so much and part of the editing helps with that almost brechtian sort of distancing technique because you're like okay now i'm over here i'm getting a breath i'm getting respite even though i'm sure there were people that had to leave the theater for this yeah, I mean, I think I really appreciate you saying that. I think that's beautifully said. I think that we definitely, any of us who make anything, have that responsibility to just ask ourselves. Um, like, I, I agree with that. I don't really know what to add to it. I definitely don't feel like the other half are cast on the ground. I mean, we never had other than assemblies cuts that long. But um, there was, you know, I think that I think that in general, you have to be aware of the world you're making stuff in and not be in a vacuum and um that doesn't mean that you have to cater to like people's you know some people's attention deficit uh ways of watching things where it's like cut, 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 cut. i think you can rail against that and ask and force people to be in a moment but i do think that past a certain length most movies become indulgent and if I looked at either of my flicks right now and had more time, uh, I'm sure we could squeeze out more. Um, that doesn't mean I want to, because I believe, you know, you make your thing and then that's your baby and you just love, that 
that's it. But uh, you have to squeeze, you have to squeeze. And I, I think that they did a great, great job of not having anything extra because I don't watch that film and want a little bit more, but I also um, don't feel like there's I not I think it's a, a challenging film as well because it's it's it does come out very strongly in favor of um, the mental illness of this person. They never actually say there's something wrong with him, but like you at no point feel like he is making the right choice. At least I think if you have a, a, any sort of rational brain, you at no point think he's making the right choice. Um, but you are still put in his corner watching him make those choices, the way they shoot behind him, etc. And I think that also makes it more difficult to watch because you there's almost an impotence that you can't stop him. You know what's going to happen, especially if you're familiar with what happened with the Montreal massacre, the Polytechnic murders. There were 14 female engineering students who were just gunned down uh, by a male gunman who uh, was anti-feminist believe that they were taking jobs away from men and uh it's just um and especially this was 1989 so that really violence in that kind of way with gun weaponry wasn't really happening columbine hadn't happened yet so this really was just ground shaking for everybody so even to be able to wrap your head around any of the the um impetus for violence like this is incredibly challenging and then how do you put that in a movie and not make it exploitative yeah, yeah. I think I think what you like we're talking about. I think the fact that he didn't make him just a movie monster, and that there was a rendering of him that um, I don't think is sympathetic. I think it's as objective as you can be, because obviously anything's subjective once you press record. But um, I think I think that's another element of the film that is incredibly important. I, I kind of look at it as there is a spectrum of illness, and then there is just evil. And I, I think that what I love about what Denny Villeneuve did is he doesn't make that decision for us. And so we can, so I think great filmmaking hopefully leaves space like a great novel for us to fill in certain things and to be an active viewer instead of, you know, an interactive viewer instead of a passive one and not just be spoon fed everything. I think there's such thing as evil. Mark Lapine was evil. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to go off on another quick rant, but I was reading about the Columbine uh, murders um, for, for something I'm writing. And um, when, when they did that, there was all this, you know, quick news about the trench coat mafia and they were bullied and they were disenfranchised and they were pushed to this. They weren't a part of the trench coat mafia for fact. They were not bullied. I mean, maybe they weren't the most popular kids in school, but they had friends, this whole narrative of they, they only had each other. It's not true. Eric Harris's diaries just talk about wanting to kill people because he doesn't like them. And he wanted to kill 2,000 people that day. And I think that there is a, a, a truth to that we know about, the, you know, the, the way in which, you know, this whole thing of like God made us in his um, image. Yes, and that's a destructive one. And I think that what great filmmaking can do, like Polytechnique, is um, just open up a world to that so that we can look at it. And if we do see a film like that, where that man was evil, in my opinion, I don't want to talk about forever his, you know, what might he have been diagnosed with if we, no, because he made a rash, he made a choice. And that man would not have been, uh, per everything he left and everything they knew about Mark Lapine, he would not have been found criminally insane in a court of law. He would have been found uh, capable or whatever we call it. And similarly, that is true of many of the people who perpetrate these violences up into and including very recently in Nova Scotia. So I don't think art is going to change this world. I don't think that Denny Villeneuve's film is going to make everybody stop being violent, but it can promote compassion and empathy. And it can promote asking ourselves more difficult questions. It's a tough film to look at for sure. But if we say to ourselves, well, 
people have to live through being opiate addicts or losing their younger brother or people survived that and people didn't survive that. So maybe, maybe what we can do is like, look at it. And that doesn't mean we know what it was like, but we're just looking at a, like in the case of Polytechnique, a very beautiful, very, very respectful rendering of what it might have been like. And, and I think that if we can look at that and walk away from that and let that be in our heads and our hearts, then, then possibly there is just a little bit more of a window to empathy and understanding and, and possibly, you know, a world where ultimately there is a little bit less violence because there's a little bit more care and kindness. And that's what I hope for and believe in when it comes to, well, I'm a filmmaker, so filmmaking. I, I just feel like for, you know, the conversations we're having and, and, and this thing of like, yes, polytechnic is hard to look at. I feel like that film saves my life a little and, and, and um, gives me a tiny window. And I'm grateful to him because I feel like that kind of love, this is gonna get cheesy for a second. I, I don't believe in a God that created the planet, no offense to everyone, I, I believe more in science. But I do believe that the sum total of goodness and love that let's just call them good people put out, non, non-murderers, just like normal good people. I believe that that energy um, is, you know, something that, that exists and is you know, on the planet. And, I think that he put up love in a way that remains with that film. And I think I'm very grateful. I agree. And I think the logical successor to it is, of course, Incendie, which he was working on at the same time, because that even through all the atrocities that are happening without it, you get that message of forgiveness and uh, thoughtfulness. And at the end of the day, motherly love, Um, weirdly and creepily for people who have seen that movie, know what I'm talking about. Um, I I think it's just a logical progression of film. And now he's making Doom. So we'll see how that turns out. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I have so many issues with Dune and the uh, and the narratives in that, but that's okay. He's we'll see what happens. He's a beautiful visual filmmaker. I'm sure it'll be gorgeous to look at. Um, Joey, we've come to the end of our time. I don't want to take any more of it, but it's been so fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, anytime. And um, my pleasure. I just have one more doing. quick thing. Can you tell people how they can find you and your work? I know you're not a big online guy, but if there's a website people can go to to be like, I want to see more Joey Klein stuff. Definitely no website at all. But the other half is um, on Amazon Prime in the States. It's on Crave in Canada. Um, Castle will be coming up May 15th uh, on iTunes here and other platforms in the States, including iTunes. And then we'll likely live on, oh, it'll be on Crave eventually in Canada for sure. Um, And then some other platforms. Um, And, you know, thanks very much for the support. And um, thank you very much. much. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.